This morning we are continuing our study in 2 Timothy. As you are finding your way to the second chapter, it conveniently follows the first. We'll be in the first seven verses of chapter 2. Now, as we look at this, it becomes important that whether you've slept since last Sunday or you haven't been as diligent to to go back and reread and refresh, that we need to set in our minds that which Paul was talking about immediately prior to this because he is, he's basing his argument, and we also want to try in some ways to get into the mind of Timothy to understand the flow of the argument that Paul is laying out for him. And see, the, the passage begins with you then, and so he, he, he's basing it on something, as someone in my Bible study this week astutely observed. Now, remember back to the passage last week. Paul went through and he talked about two kinds of of people effectively. Remember, he ended the passage in 15 through 18, and there were three people that he spoke about, names that you've likely forgotten. Let me remind you. It is Onesiphorus. We'll put him in the good guy category. And then in the bad guy category, we've got Phagellus, and we've got Hermogenes, okay? Now, who's in the good guy category? Onesiphorus. Who's in the bad guy category? Those names are harder. They don't roll off the tongue. They're not as easy to say. But we have those three characters. Now, you'll remember that Paul was calling them to invest and involve their lives in his work and what he was doing there. He talked about suffering and that he was not ashamed for the gospel. And he instructed Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that he had heard from Paul. And that he is to be guarding the good deposit. Timothy is to be working for the preservation and the strength of the gospel. And we see that played out two different ways. You see, all three of these individuals had heard about Paul's suffering. They all knew uh, Paul as a tremendous preacher. Likely some of them had been converted at the hand of Paul. But when they heard about his imprisonment, they responded in two ways. Now, on the positive side, we see Onesiphorus, he hears about, about Paul's imprisonment, and what does he do? He makes plans to go to Rome. In fact, the text tells us, as we read last week, that, that Onesiphorus gets to Rome, and he gets busy searching for exactly where Paul is located. I mean, you can imagine he's going from prison to prison. He says, look, do you have a guy in here that looks like he's been beaten severely, starved over and over again, shipwrecked multiple times, and, and all around just life's been hard on him? And they say, well, that, that, that sounds like a lot of our prisoners. He says, well, do you have Paul of Tarsus? No, we don't have him. So he goes to the next, to the next prison. He runs through the same thing. Eventually, he's, the text tells us he sought earnestly, and he found Paul. Onesiphorus was not ashamed of Paul, nor of his chains, and in fact, he sought out opportunities to minister to Paul. Now, Timothy hears that, and he is encouraged. He knows Onesiphorus. He knows the work that he did there in Ephesus, and he is hearing this encouraging report from Paul about the work that Onesiphorus continued to do, even when others fell away. And then we look at the bad guys and their response. We look at Phagellus, we look at Hermogenes. They'd heard the same gospel, they knew the same Paul, but when they saw what the gospel demanded of Paul, when they saw how society reacted to Paul, that he had been put in jail, that he'd been placed in chains, and that he was awaiting his execution, it didn't produce in them a redoubled effort to go out and seek him out and see how they might minister to him. Instead, it swelled in them shame. 
Instead, it produced in them embarrassment. And they abandoned Paul. And you might even be able to make an argument that they walked out on the gospel. So Paul comes back into Timothy. He's given him an account of three people that Timothy knew well. And he's going to tell Timothy what to do with that information. So let me read the passage for us, and then we'll walk through and see Paul's instruction to Timothy. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And in verse 7, he gives him this application. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. See, Paul writes, and to Timothy, as Timothy is, is, is wrangling and looking at the fallout of, of what has happened with these three men, Paul writes him and says, Timothy, be strengthened. Now, I, I don't know how many of you have gone through difficult things in life. I remember uh, working with my dad, and for whatever reason, I, I frequently got hurt. I think that's more his fault. He, he was the one supervising. I, I was a child. I was innocent. And just like the monkey, I was very, very curious. But I ended up getting hurt on a lot of our little adventures that we'd go out. I remember one time in particular, we were out and, and we were changing the blades on a bush hog. And so we had it, had it lifted up. And then all of a sudden, it came down and crushed me. No, that would have been a whole lot more alarming. But instead, we had this bush hog up and we had to take the blades of it off. But we could not get these nuts off. They were frozen on. Man, you get the world's biggest wrench, these things were not going to come off. And so my dad said, this is what we'll do. You're going to hold a chisel, and I'm going to hit it with a sledgehammer. <clears throat> now, hey, look, there's not a whole lot comforting from this angle when you're seeing a sledgehammer swung at you. All you can think of is, I hope he loves me. And don't we have a longer set of pliers? And so I'm standing or kneeling there, and I'm, I'm holding this chisel. And my dad says, son, quit shaking. I'm going to miss. <sighs> because that's going to make me shake less. Right? And so he says, well, let me just tap it a couple times so you get the feel of it. And so he, you know, brings it down and just kind of taps it. It's all fun and games. It's all fun and games. Then he rears back and he gets a good swing. Bang! My hand's still there, okay. I'm safe. He swings back the second time. Bink! I'm safe. He swings back the third time. Oh man, that hurt. And I, I, I dropped the pliers and the chisel shot out, and I'm thinking, this is how I'm gonna go around the rest of my life because I'm too afraid to look at my finger. And I look down, and blood is just running down my arm. It's running down my arm. My dad says, son, where did the pliers go? <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't know that I've got five fingers anymore. Let's, look, let's, let's figure this thing out. And 
I turn my hand over and my finger is just filleted open. And blood's just pouring out. And if you're, if you're queamish, or squeamish rather, uh, lo siento. This is the best part of the story. Anyway, and so I'm working through this and, and blood's coming down. And he said, son, grab those pliers. We got to finish this thing off. Buck up. Be strong. And man, I'm feeling lightheaded at this point. Needless to say, his encouragement to me to be strong did very little to affect us finishing that job that day. More like the 16 stitches I got in my finger and the pain medicine I got injected in there. That's what I needed. I didn't need to be told to be strong. What I needed was a doctor, and I needed him right then. But look at what Paul tells Timothy. He doesn't offer him the the empty charge to, to buck up, to be strong. But look at this. He uses a a passive imperative. He tells Timothy, look, you can't do this on your own. It's an empty thing. It would have been an empty thing for Paul to look at Timothy and be like, look, you have one guy that did well. You've got two guys that bailed on this. It's okay. Be strong. Instead, he tells him, he says, be strengthened. And look what he tells him to be strengthened in. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul tells him, he says, look, Timothy, you need help. He reminds him of of his salvation. You'll remember that Paul started the letter by reminding Timothy of the salvation that resided in his grandmother and to his mother and to him. But now he turns and he says, Timothy, what you need is a fresh infusion of God's grace. It's his grace that enabled you to overcome sin. It's his grace that enabled you to be forgiven. But now you need to pray that God would send his grace that you might be strengthened for what I'm about to ask of you. You see, there are too many of us that when we come into situations, we come into problems, when we think back to our, our salvation experience, we say things shouldn't be this difficult for a Christian. They shouldn't be this difficult for me. They shouldn't be this difficult for my family. And so we, we try and be strong. We try and just beast our way through. We try and just man up and, and work our way through it. But what Paul would instruct us is that we are to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need to avail ourselves of that thing which is there and waiting. Man, it is, it is in us because of the cross of Christ and it is available to us because of our identification with Christ. But too many of us end up finding ourselves going through life numb, tired, and beaten down because we are trying to strengthen ourselves. Be strengthened by the grace that was in you because of Christ Jesus. And now look what Paul tells him to do in verse 2. Now, it, it, it's instructional for you to know that Timothy is not to remain in Ephesus indefinitely. In fact, at the end of the letter, in chapter 4, Paul he solicits Timothy's aid. He says, I want you to come to me as soon as you can. And so Timothy needs to be making preparation for his exodus. He needs to be making preparation so that he can go and minister to Paul in Rome. And so with that in mind, Paul writes and he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. This is what Paul's doing. Paul's reminding Timothy of the same thing we talked about last week, those sound words that he heard from him. Paul's reminding Timothy of that time when when he was together and traveling around with Paul and he was receiving the instruction of the gospel. 
And all these other men and women were receiving the same instruction. And Paul was pouring into them of how the gospel should be moving and changing their lives and the demands of the gospel. Paul is is pointing out the instruction that he shared with Timothy. That's what he reminds him of. But what is he to do with it? He is to entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, Paul has this ready recognition that the gospel is only ever one generation away from being extinct. That the the power of the gospel in Christianity is only ever one generation away from being gone. Now, a lot of us look at that and they say, well, I'm doing my part. I I had 15 kids. By a lot of us, I'm using that in the royal sense. I've got two kids. So I need the rest of you to have 13. So we can get to 15. Anyway, and so we recognize that we're doing our part. We're, we're pouring out our lives. We're ministering to our kids every chance we get. When we're not yelling at them, we're sharing the gospel with them. Every chance around dinner time, we're sure to display to them that we're praying. Oh, Father, we pray that you bless this food. Stop talking. And we pray that you... Stop. Amen. Man, it is, it is difficult. Even in just doing it with our children, even in just sharing the gospel and living out a a gospel-defined lives with our children. But if that's all we're doing, then we're missing it. See, Paul doesn't write and say, Timothy, find faithful men that love their families and love their children, because that is natural. Because that's, that's expected. That's automatic. That's something that just comes very easily to us. We want to see our children saved. We want to see our children go on to live fruitful lives as Christians, as young men and women, and we want to see them be seasoned with grace and wisdom. But look what Paul says. He's in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we need to be sharing the gospel and sowing broadly. We need to be sharing with a number of people. But the question becomes, who is Timothy supposed to entrust the future of the church they're in Ephesus to. Paul describes it. He says, entrust it to faithful men. Now, you'll remember that when we went through in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, and we looked at the office of, of elder overseer, and we looked at the office of deacon, that the primary distinction between these two was that an elder needed to be able to do what? He needed to be able to teach. That's right. An elder needs to be able to teach. Now, this, this mark or this distinction of one who is faithful, this wasn't something Timothy could come to by just standing in front of people and reading Paul's letters and, and seeking to apply them to their lives. This was something that we have to come to by being so thoroughly invested in one another's lives. So we recognize certain individuals as faithful because they are examples to the rest of us. But what we are seeking to do is raise up a generation of people who would all be faithful. Seeking to raise up a generation of that would be called faithful. How are you finding yourselves involved in the lives of the people of your church? How are you doing finding yourself involved with the lives of of those in your faith community. You simply can't tell somebody's faithfulness by an observance on a Sunday morning or in a Sunday school group. You can't see the needs. You can't see the hurts. 
you, you can't see past this facade that each of us are so rehearsed at employing. And this is why we are called in Scripture to prolonged exposure to one another. We're, we're, we're called to invest ourselves in one another's lives. Find key people that will pour into your life and you can turn around and pour into their lives. You see, that's what Timothy's been doing there in Ephesus. He surrounded himself with men of like mind. He surrounded himself with men who were primarily marked by being followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul gets to with this designation that these men would be faithful. And see what this does for the rest of us. Is it sets in our minds firmly that being faithful is a characteristic that all of us would have said of us. That we want to be known as those who are faithful. We want to be known as someone who, who, who it could come and it could rest on our shoulders. The call of the gospel is that we would continue to grow and to mature and to be able to be the one who would be faithful. But Paul specifically, I think, here designates those elders in his designation, in his recognition, they need to be able to teach others also. Now see, this isn't an indication that Paul recognized teaching only takes place with one or two or three people. Certainly in, in, in the elders or in the, the, the presbyters, or whatever you want to call them, certainly in those men, they have to be able to teach. Man, you would not be a, a minister or a pastor or an elder or whatever you want to call it very long if you couldn't teach. I mean, people would, would sympathize. You could have an off week or two. You could have a dry season where nothing you say is, is impacting people's lives. But if week in and week out, you're not able to teach and to impact lives by expositing Scripture, you need a career change. Maybe you should move into charity work. Maybe you should do something else. But you definitely should not be interpreting the Word of God for others. There is a high weightiness in that office about those who are able to teach. But man, as parents, as friends, we need to be so investing ourselves in the study of God's word that we're able to turn around when a friend comes to us in need, when a friend comes to us and, and her husband's leaving her or, or a man comes in, his wife is leaving him or their children are making bad decisions or he's lost his job. You don't turn with some some trite expression and say, well, you know, man, I just, I, I just don't know what to say to you. Uh, let's pray, because that seems like a good idea. You need to be one that when they come in, you can dip down into the well of wisdom you've got from investing yourself in the word of God, and you can comfort your friend biblically. You can offer them encouragement from the word of God. You can give them instruction. You can help them chart a course because you have so dedicated your life to being found under the pattern of scripture so that when someone else comes into you and they have a problem, you're not stumped on what to do. You don't offer them five steps to the perfect family. You don't offer them four difficult things that nobody's thought about. What you offer them is the word of God and you apply it to their lives. You show them how their problems have an answer in God's word. Do you see how that works? 
Now look what Paul calls him into. Paul pivots in verse 3 and he offers Timothy three illustrations. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. When he starts off, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, I remember as a child singing songs about never riding in the cavalry, never being in the infantry, but I'm in the Lord's army. I didn't get it, but it had hand motions, and I really liked that about singing it. But as we come to this passage, passage, we recognize that as adults, that we have each and every one of us who identify with Christ, who Christ has come in and saved you, you have been recruited, you have been enlisted, you have been conscripted. Now you serve in his army. Paul tells him, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We recognize that in, in the, 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 this military campaign of pushing back the darkness, that we are toiling in the trenches against the prince of darkness. And with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are called and challenged to serve, not as just a soldier. We're not just some mindless grunt who goes to and fro, but we are called to be a good soldier. Man, there's a, there's a healthy distinction there. You're not one who's loosely just been called to service. It's not just that you get to wear the uniform, but you are doing the job. Man, we are called to be good soldiers of Christ Jesus. Good soldiers of Christ Jesus. Now look what he says about these soldiers and, and, and soldiering. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, from their culture and what Paul is describing in the, in the Roman military, soldiers were not allowed to have side businesses. And so, you know, as you're traveling around, and maybe it would have been a good idea, you're a soldier, but I'm also an antique collector. So as we go in and pillage and destroy villages, I'm like, don't touch this bench, y'all. I get back to Rome, I can hawk this thing for big money. You see how that, that, that could add up. Problems could be there. If the soldiers' minds are on how they can produce income and how they should win in battle, they are being pulled in two very separate directions. Now, when we apply this analogy to our lives, we recognize that as Christians, I mean, there are absolutely those things that entangle us. There are those things that distract us. But what we don't want to do is to be compartmentalizing our Christianity. See, many, as, many of us, as we sit down and we plan out our week, we plan out our summers and all this stuff, we, we sit down and we lay everything out, right? So you lay out academic pursuits, you, you lay out professional pursuits. You make time to attend conferences that will help you advance in your career field. You make time for, for home improvement projects. You make time for exercise. You make time for those doctor's checkups. And then when we get done filling our schedule with all of this stuff, all of the effective honeydews of life, we look at it and we say, man, something's missing. Surely I can, I can find 15, I can, you know what, I can wake up 15 minutes earlier in the morning and I can, I can read my Bible in that time. You know what, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just stay up 15 minutes later and, and I'll, I'll read my Bible for 15 minutes at that time. You do that for a couple of weeks and, and you start, you know, popping your chest and you think, man, I have arrived. 
I've been spending 15 minutes every day reading my Bible. Man, by the end of this year, I, I'm going to have read through the whole thing. Unless I get sick, of course, because I, I need my sleep. And in that 15 minutes, I'm going to need it back. But I can catch up later. See, that's how you go through Christianity. Your serving is nothing more than a grunt. I mean, you're wearing the uniform. You allow yourself to be identified as one who is a good soldier. But in reality, you've gone AWOL with your lifestyle. In reality, you, you've become so enmeshed and entangled with all the difficulties of life, with all the different things of life, that you've got no time for intense, real Christianity. You've got no time for these things because you have so clouded your schedule and all of these things that you can never make time for Jesus. Now think about this. I read an article a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and this guy was uh, going through and he was commenting on, on sports and just how crazy difficult it, it has made it for parents to keep their kids in church. It's made it difficult for parents to find themselves in church because of weekend trips. And, and this one person wrote from the perspective and they said, yeah, but I've really decided that I'm going to be a missionary on my kid's baseball team. And, but, you know, by the end of the season, I'm going to share the gospel with everybody in the baseball team and even some of their opponents if we're not beating them too bad because, you know, it just feels like rubbing salt in wounds. So the person got to the end of the season and they started reflecting on all the people that they had endeavored to be a missionary to reach. And what they realized is that all that they had really done is show their children that it's fine, it's okay to miss church. It's fine, it's okay, because what you're sacrificing for is a college education. You know what that communicates? You know what that tells? It tells your children that college is more important than Jesus. Man, that's a, that's a hard message. That's a hard thing to hear. What it tells your kids is that their extracurricular activities and all the things you want for them in their future, you want them to be bright, you want them to be smart, you want them to succeed, and you tells them that their success is more important than Jesus. Do you certainly think so and so should they? Man, that's a hard message to hear. Think of the professional that... that takes time away from his family to, to pour himself into 80 and 90 hour work weeks. What does that tell his wife? What does that tell his kids? What does that tell his employees? It tells them that the most important thing for him is that his business succeed. And Jesus is blessing it and it's just taking off. You know, for some of us, the worst thing that could ever happen is that we get what we're chasing after. We get a taste of success and we want more, so we pour more time and more energy and more effort into it. My prayer for many of us is that God would let us be abject failures so that we'd fall on our face, cry out, Father, forgive me. Chase the wrong thing. I pursued empty idols. I pursued those things which, which don't have lasting import in my life. God, forgive me. Change my heart. Pray it's not too late for my children. Pray it's not too late for my family. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Now this is curious. He says, since it is the aim, since it is his aim to please the one who enlisted him. Now, my experience and my exposure with recruiters 
is twofold. On the one hand, I remember being in high school, I'd signed up for selective service, and the phone started ringing a couple of weeks later, and they'd say, hey, Matt Beasley, you know, you signed up for this, and, and uh, I'd love to get together with you and, and do lunch and talk to you about how you could serve in the military, how you could serve as a Marine in the Air Force, the Navy, or whatever. And I said, ah, you know, that's not really the plan set before me. At that time, I thought I was going to be a dentist. Man, was I wrong. <coughs> And so I, I didn't go that way, but a few months ago at the Y, there was a group of recruiters that started working out at the Y. They were in there the same time I was, and so four or five guys. And it was fascinating to listen to them talk about working their call sheets. And, and all the people they called and all the meetings they'd had, and they'd say, man, I remember I, you know, I spoke to this girl on the phone the other day, and I can't tell if she's so much into me as she is the military, but I think I can use that to get her to sign the paperwork. And I remember thinking... I don't think she was into you. I think she was just being polite on the phone. But see, that's, that's what our understanding is when we think about being enlisted. We think about some man or woman sitting in a recruiting office running down a call sheet and calling. And this person's going to have very limited, if any, involvement in our future military service. But look at what the text says. It says that our aim should be to please the one who enlisted us. We recognize that in Christianity and what Paul is writing to is that it's not some person who shared the gospel with us. It's not our blessed grandmother. It's not our favorite youth pastor. It's not our, our parent. It's not our brother. It's not the street evangelist. But in fact, it is Jesus. You see, from his perspective, he sees Jesus as the one who had enlisted him. And our aim should be to please him. So when you're working and you're striving and you're suffering for the gospel, you're not doing it to please your family. You're not doing it to impress church people. You're not doing it to impress your, your coworkers or employees or spouse. You're not doing it to, to affect any of them. You're doing it and you're working hard so that you might please Jesus. And when you catch that, when you get a hold of that in your marriage, when you get a hold of that in your work, when you get a hold of that, it's going to change everything. When you start weighing every decision and every penny spent, and you ask yourself, am I serving Am I doing, am I making decisions in such a way that it will please Jesus? It's going to change everything for you. See, as a Christian, we don't have the option of not asking that question. And that's the argument Paul is making. He says, look, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits, but instead, please Jesus. Next, he moves to the athlete. He says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, this is a little bit different for us. In fact, if you followed anything to do with, with Lance Armstrong, what we find in some athletes are those who are seeking to move just right outside the rules because they want to win. They want to be the best. And to be the best, you've got to bend the rules a little bit. But you see, in the day when Paul was writing this, some of the Roman games that they would be involved in before they could compete. They had to give a testimony that they had committed, they had done 
the required amount of training necessary to compete. Now, today, if, if you were to sign up for a marathon and show up, you'd see people of all shapes and sizes, some who, who I mean, they're just, they're just not going to finish. Just a couple of days ago, their friend bet them that they couldn't do a marathon, and their friend is about to be very happy that they're going to lose. And then we see those who are career runners. And so anybody and everybody can go in, and there's nobody asking at the beginning, well, oh, exactly, exactly how much time have you dedicated to this? How much training have you given yourself to in the pursuit of this? You see, in the day Paul is writing to compete in the games, they had to give a statement. They had to promise that they had, in fact, entered into this mandatory training. Now, we, we, we think about it in terms of our day, and I was reading this week, and this guy was talking about what it takes to be at the height of your profession. It, it really doesn't matter. In fact, the article started, and he was talking about classical music. And so he said he'd figured out what 2,500 of the most prominent pieces uh, performed by symphonies and orchestras all over the world. And he tracked this back, and he said that by the time he got to the end of it, all of these pieces were written by only 76 individuals. 2,500 most, most prominent pieces, only written by 76 individuals. And what he discovered, furthermore, in looking at them, that with the exception of two of these individuals, their success didn't come into the 10th year. They gave themselves to pursuit, they gave themselves to excellence, and they did so with the exception of two for a decade before anybody noticed, before any popularity caught on. Man, that is discipline. But when he turned to athletics, this, this author was writing about Kobe Bryant, and he, he wrote from the perspective of this guy named Robert, who was a trainer for Team USA in the last Summer Olympics. Now, Team USA was out in Las Vegas, and they were training, and, and Kobe came over to the strength trainer, and he said, hey, hey, Robert, uh, would you mind if I you know, called you sometime to give me an extra workout? The guy said, Kobe Bryant, it would be my honor. I would love to. So Robert Rice, he says that night, for whatever reason, he stayed up late. He didn't have to be at practice until 11 o'clock the next morning. So he decided that for the first time ever, he would watch Casablanca. Why he chose that, I don't know, but it adds spice to the story. And so about 3.30 in the morning, uh, Casablanca's winding down. He realizes that this love story is not going to end the way he thought it would. He's very upset about that. And he finally decides to go to sleep. 4.15 in the morning, his phone rings. Kobe Bryant says, hey, Rob, I hope I'm not bothering you. He said, no, nah, man, I'm awake. Go ahead. What can I do for you? He said, well, could you meet me down in the gym and work me out a little bit? He said, yeah, man, I'll be down there in a little bit. So he said he arrives down at the gym, and what he finds is a man covered in sweat. He was, he was so sweaty and so worked up, it looked like he had just gotten done swimming. And so that he began to enter into this time of workout and this exercise for him. Now, Kobe Bryant had been there from 4.30 to 5 a.m., but when he showed up, they did conditioning work. They did sprints, and they did that for the next hour and 15 minutes. So they hit the end of that time. He said, what do you want to do next? He said, man, I thought we'd go lift some weights. So they, they went into the gym, and they lifted weights for 45 minutes. Let me catch this up. Writing, he said, Kobe Bryant started his conditioning workout around 4.30, continued to run and do sprints until 6, then lifted weights from 6 to 7. Now, they hit the end of that weightlifting time, and he says, all right, Rob, thanks so much. Rob's worn out, man. This guy's exhausted. It's 7 in the morning. He's been at the gym from, from 5 to 7, so he goes back to his room, and he crashes. 
About 10.55, he rolls into the gym, and he sees the other players. He sees Dwayne Wade. He sees all these guys standing around. He sees Kobe Bryant over in the corner shooting baskets. He walks over to him and says, man, that was, a, that was a great workout this morning. What time did you get back here? Kobe says, what do you mean? He said, yeah, you know, this morning, man, it was a great effort for you. What time did you get back here? He said, man, I haven't left. He said, I don't leave the gym until I've made 800 shots. He said, I don't leave until I've made it 800 times. See, that's, that's a tremendous display of discipline. And that is dedication to the cause. And the text tells us that it is the athlete, Paul uses that metaphor, driving at the thought that athletes are those who are disciplined. And we ask ourselves, how disciplined are we? Are we willing to forego sleep? Are we willing to forego meals? Are we, wishing, are we willing to, to miss television shows? Are we, are we willing to forego all of these things so that we might attain perfection in our pursuits? So that we might attain to the thing that we are called for. Paul tells us that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now the Christian life in effect, is a race that is not ended until we die or Christ comes. And at that time, we will be judged according to the way that we used our resources, according to the way that we spent our time. How do you want to answer? And this isn't going to save you. But this is what it is to be a Christian. This is what it is to serve in such a way as to please the one who enlisted us. This is what it is to be an athlete for Christ. For the final illustration, Paul says, look, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, I've never met a farmer that I would walk away and say, they have an easier life than I do. I mean, you ask a, a typical farmer, well, what does your day look like? He said, well, you know, wake up a couple hours before the sun gets up, go out, uh, milk some cows, and do all this stuff. And they have done more in, in, in their day before they sit down for breakfast than many of us do the entire day. They have accomplished more and worked harder and slaved over difficult things. It is very difficult. Nobody becomes a farmer because they think it is going to be an easy way of life. But look how Paul describes this farmer. He says it's not just the farmer, but it is the hardworking farmer. When you think over your life, Think of your time spent and the way you, way you apportion resources. How are you following Christ? Do you see yourself in these three illustrations? Or instead, as you look at these, do you see yourself, uh, like me this week, as I looked at these, standing back and asking of myself, how much am I willing to give? How diligently am I willing to pursue? Because God asks for nothing less than 100% allegiance. He asks for nothing less than all of you. How do you respond to that? Where do you see yourself in that? Now realizing that this would be a difficult thing for Timothy to wade through, Paul concludes in verse 7. And he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. See, but this isn't 
just some casual thing, or if you have time, maybe you should, maybe you should dedicate a portion of it to this. See, the imperative Paul uses here, the command Paul uses here, is that Timothy is to spend the lion's share of his time reflecting on the word of God and the demands that it will have on him because of who God is. You remember that Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able. When we know who God is, when we recognize the sacrifice that Christ paid on the cross, when we recognize that he laid down his life, and we give ourselves to careful thought and inspection of how it applies to our lives. Paul gives us a careful plan of Bible study with the promise that the Lord will give us understanding in everything. Let me pray for us.